and welcome. It is the old school, Dr. Stephen Bourgeois and Mr. Ross Miller coming to you live from our various sanctum sanctorums uh, inside our offices, uh, surrounded by books, warm colors, and a general feeling of comfortability. Available on some of the places where you get your podcasts. We're still working on that. It's still, a, it's still an ongoing concern. Uh, but nevertheless, here we are. Good morning, Dr. Bourgeois. Good morning, Mr. Miller, uh, who just invented like two new words in that intro. I did not. What are you talking about? It said comfort. Com- I can't even say it. Comfortability? What is that? Comfortability, yes. <laughs> the state of comfortableness. What about comfort? Um, I do that as well. You know, I tend not to go with those short words, but uh, you know, it well, depends upon uh, where you are in your in your upbringing. But uh, well, so. that's okay. You're you're doing maybe all I the did, work. I'm maybe I did make it. it up. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I have to look it up right now. So I look up, up a lot of things when you talk. What's the other word? Um, I forgot it now. I forgot a lot about <laughs> your introduction. It was really good though. I liked it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so what are we doing today? What are we talking about here, Miller? I thought we were just uh, catching up on things, you know, seeing how you're doing. You know? No, no, we don't do that. We get right to the talk about personal meat. problems and oh. no, no, keep no, keep, okay. keep on topic. We've we've uh, had some reviews to our podcast, and they say um, that you meander a lot. Thank goodness that Bourgeois <laughs> keeps us on track. Well, every couple has got to have a dreamer, you know. As uh, <laughs> Nate Bargatze once said, the comedian, everyone, every couple's got to have a dreamer. You're the joy, you're the buzzkill, you know, to keep us on track. Make sure we don't spend a lot of money. Don't take so, those exuberant vacations. Um, what was my original question? Oh yeah, what the heck are we doing, Mr. <laughs> Miller? Uh, advice for new teachers. That's it. That's it. Uh, that's your I, I think that's a pretty meaty topic, don't you think? Well, the advice could be don't do it. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not going uh, to be the advice. Oh, well, uh, for example, if you talk to a rabbi, I mean, you could tell me this story. Don't they um, try to dissuade you from converting initially? I mean, how does that work? Well, there certainly is an exploration as to why you're doing it in the first place. I think the first warning sign or the first red flag for any rabbi who is counseling someone who wants to enter into the realm of Judaism willingly, or perhaps not, is if they're doing it for somebody else. You know, well, I married this lady and she's Jewish. And so, you know, at that point, I think the rabbi starts getting all kinds of warning signals, red alert signs, you know, klaxons ringing off in the distance. And so, yes, I mean, I think there's a, I think the first question you got to ask yourself is what are you doing it for? You know, and and I think that that's a legitimate. I think that's a legitimate question, and it's a legitimate question that I I'm not sure how many young teachers have the answer for. At least not in terms where they're not just spouting pablum. You know, just you know whatever, you know whatever kind of uh, whatever they they were told by their education school to say in interviews. <laughs> I really want to make a difference. Oh, okay, you could create better road signs if you wanted to make a difference, you know? So, um, so I think that that's one of the things that I think every young teacher needs to be able to answer and do so without, you know, wading in the waters of whatever it is that education schools are dictating students to, to regurgitate at interviews. 
Well, I think a lot of teachers go into it kicking and screaming. I mean, I know that was my my stance. I didn't, you know, I wanted to do anything else than teach. I mean, my father was a, a teacher and, and that was my idea for, through a lot of my college. And then it, it really became kind of a fallback, you know, and I think that it's a pretty good fallback, but um, knowing you want to be a teacher, you really can't know until you have the experience. You, you think you might know. Well, to a certain extent, you could say that about anything. I was, I was actually quite excited to do it. Now, I found, myself, I found myself at times befuddled by what I was surrounded by um, as far as like some of those early experiences in the classroom, like working as a university student, you know, uh, observing classes or what have you. But I always had the sense, you know, from the moment I decided this is what I was going to go to school for, I always had the idea that I wanted to be a teacher and I was kind of geeked up to do it. I liked it. I still like it. It's good good to know you've done it for like, what, a quarter of a century? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're pretty old here, Miller. Not as old Uh, as you, though. Well, uh, let's not get personal here. Um, Think back to the the times, because I know there are some... um, teachers in training out there, you know, probably listening to us. Um, I do recall that time and you just mentioned it. Um, it's a little bit intimidating to take, take over a class. A lot of times you're sitting in the back, uh, watching, but then eventually you have to come out and stand in front of the class and interact. And, um, so it's, it's a big deal to, to do that. Um, but I do remember some things kind of clicking, you know, once I got to get in, in front of the class and interact with the students and I, I found it uh, stimulating. I really in, enjoyed that part. Um, and I didn't even want to be a German teacher. That was my subject that I taught for 25 years. Um, I was trying to go into music. And so I wanted to get certified in something that was uh, the quickest certification happened to be German. Then my plan was to, get into to teaching music with that initial certification. But the weird thing is I enjoy, I found I enjoyed teaching German uh, because of that interaction. Whereas in music, you're, you're conducting a rehearsal basically. So you say that the German is, was more kind of an interactive sphere in which you could work. Yeah. Which you found more rewarding. Yeah. I like the, you know, the, the back and forth kind of, there's so much humor in in the way, you know, at least the way you and I conduct a class and it just, um, it keeps things very interesting and and every, you know, it's not by the book, every class is is different. Hmm. So I I noticed that pretty early on, but, but the, there's again, a big jump between when you're training, because you're pretty much following the system of of the, your cooperating teacher. You're not coming in with new ideas and let's try this. So it's pretty, you're pretty much, uh, what would you call it? Imitating mm. that, that teacher, but uh, you're also processing and coming up with ideas. Um, what do you recall early on? Um, you know, after, you know, maybe the transition from uh, student teaching to actually having your own classroom. Well, student teaching, I, I think, you know, as far as like um, time of life or kind of phase of life that I happened to be in, I was a little bit different than my colleagues that were also doing student teaching. I I spent four and a half years in the military and um, and I was just in a different headspace, as the kids say, you know, when I was doing it. And I was I was geeked up to do it. And I had a teacher, a cooperating, a, 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 what's the a, a, a teacher overseeing teacher who was willing to allow me to to a certain extent do my own thing. And uh, we would talk it over every morning. 
what I was going to do or what my thought process was. But uh, on the whole, you know, I, I had a bit of a free hand. And then when, um, when it came time to be in my own classroom, it was more of an extension of that. But I think any good teacher will tell you there's, an, a, there's a constant process of evaluation that is done, you know, where on the drive home, well, that didn't work or, hey, wow, that was pretty successful. That was, that was fantastic, you know. And so I think, I think a combination of coming in with a certain amount of confidence, I think I already had that to a certain degree, but I think that reevaluation and willingness to try new things was something that I got from my supervisory teacher and I kind of carried it into my own classroom. I think it's, um, it, it's amazing to consider how you change as a teacher. I mean, over 25 years, for example, that first experience, you know, with a, as a student teacher, uh, I recall pretty much adopting his his method, and this is for teaching German, so it's a little bit specific. But um, he he got to school really early, about ninety minutes before the students would arrive, and he created a lot of worksheets. I mean, he had this and, and this stack of things. So he was the first in the copy room. That was different stacks for each class period, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it was pretty much paper based. Um, he had a, one of the early gradebook programs, um, and that was back in 1987. Um, and, and so um, I used that, you know, in my first, you know, several years of teaching, and I had like this Performa computer eventually, um, but it was all about having lots of grades and, and lots of worksheets and readings, but all prepared ahead of time. Um, but the key word is prepared. And so these are things that I would create rather than, so I never in my career really took things off the shelf. That was because for him, he told me, he said, this is the most creative part about teaching. You don't want to just do the same thing all the time. You want to constantly uh, create new material. So I did take that away. But um, the worksheets, you know, eventually I shifted from that. Uh, but I think you, uh, you could generalize that people start with their student te teaching experience and then morph after that. They do. And I think one of the things that goes along with that something that helped me as a teacher as quickly as possible. A new teacher needs to start creating their own stuff. And I remember my first gig, I had a very supportive uh, group of folks within the social studies department. Uh, some of them, I remained friends long after I left that school and there was no expectation from me and certainly nothing offered from them where they would just hand over, you know, uh, you know, in total, their stuff. Here, here's my stuff on this. Or here's my stuff on that. It was all about saying, here's how you create your own stuff. And the creating of your own stuff was done for the purposes of allowing you the time to learn your craft. And not just learn your craft, but learn your subject. And so, you know, anytime I see a new teacher come in and, this, and, and sometimes I'll have somebody say, you know, we should give them all this stuff. I said, well, no. I think one of the problems of, um, you know, one aspect of technology that can be problematic is that every, every textbook comes with it, uh, a whole test bank of questions. And so the person doesn't even have to write their own test questions. But the problem is there is a learning process and there is an enrichment process when you learn and write your own questions. And I, and I would say that that's a, that's a tip I would give a kind of a new teacher. Yes, you want to start out with some things that perhaps you're getting from other people because everybody knows a teacher, a good teacher is 
in part a thief. You know, you steal good ideas from other people and then you utilize them and you kind of modify them to your own circumstance. But I think it's also crucial that you start making up your own stuff as quickly as you can. That could almost be a, a rule for good teaching. And I kind of applied mm. it to myself or I would not give my students something to do unless I created it. Mm. Same kind of cheap to hear, hear them just printing out a worksheet that, you know, other, someone else created. It's got to be specific. Um, I, I felt guilty if I just get, gave something off the shelf. But you, I mean, there's always going to be times when, you know, something like that is going to be utilized, but at the same time, it's, you know, the question is, what are you doing to kind of improve your understanding of what it means to be a teacher, but also what it means to be a teacher of fill in the blank, whatever subject that you are endeavoring to teach. And so and I think, you know, the idea of creating your own material, it does not suggest that you can never use others, other people's material. But I think creating your own gives you a, a stake in that process. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the new teachers. I know you you as, as in your current role, you hire new teachers, you know, occasionally, and you've had some experiences. Um, but also um, nationally, there there's some kind of scary statistics within that first within the first five years of teaching. Half fifty percent leave the profession entirely, um, which means that you know there there are a lot of reasons to to leave. You know, and, and it could be. That you're you want to do another profession and you're just tired of teaching. Um, you want to perhaps start a family, and, and and there are a lot of personal reasons. But still, after all of that training, uh, suddenly you teach one, two, or three years, and you're gone. Um, has that been your experience? You know, over the years, seeing people, how many stick? I guess after they start with a lot of confidence. <clears throat> well, I think I think when you look at um, the folks that I've hired, uh, I've had a couple that burned out, you know, and, and, and burned out in a sense that they simply were not prepared for the reality of the job in contrast to the theory of the job. And this is the problem with a lot of education schools at universities. They are ran by folks who have not been in a classroom in a real sense, um, certainly not in a public school, you know, I, I don't count university classrooms. It's a different animal, but, um, uh, these education programs are primarily ran by folks who they're hell and gone from their classroom experience. And so absent of, uh, relevant practical information that they can give, they are, they have to fall back on theory. And the problem with theory is that it often doesn't hold with the reality. And so, you know, you get teachers that, I mean, that's, that's supposed to be what the, uh, that's supposed to be what the student teaching experience is supposed to be about is the idea of getting a understanding of the reality of the situation. The problem is you're only doing it for about two, three months, you know, as far as, as far as the university calendar, driving with the public school calendar, you're not doing it almost as far as an entire semester. And so your experience is limited. And so when you are thrown into the mix, that's where problems arise. Now I've had teachers that I have worked with a great deal to kind of coach them along. Um, and that makes it sound like that they were, they, they didn't have their st stuff together. That's not the case, but I think anybody thrown into a new situation is going to need some help to a certain extent. And so 
you know, mentoring or whatever the case may be, just a place where someone can ask questions, um, you know, uh, a mentor teacher that can anticipate problems that the teacher might have. We've been able to do that. And as a result, we've kept a lot of our new teachers, but we've lost a few. And it's because of that disconnect between what they, how they learned their craft and then how they applied their craft. I, w- I would think that there are um, things that never come up during student teaching and, and they're kind of confronted uh, once they have their own job. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know how many student teachers get to have a parent meeting when the parent is not happy. Um, you know, maybe they're not even allowed to have that meeting, sure. um, but that's a, you know, an interaction that, that can make or break you. Um, interacting with the <laughs> with a vice principal who who may not know your content or a lot about teaching but gives you some meaningful feedback that you don't agree with you know that that can happen um all of the testing and the fact that the tests are imposed upon a, a teacher there's just a lot of stress uh, and and student discipline managing disruptive behavior um, I don't know if a student teacher these days gets to close the door and be alone with the students. I, I think that there are some rules that they that they that you're still in there. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I mean, now, I mean, some teachers, uh, well, different teachers, you know, treat that differently, you know. And so I think some do step away. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's against the rules that they're alone in the classroom with the students. Because um, I've seen it happen, you know, but um certainly it's not typical i think a lot of times the uh, overseeing teacher likes to kind of make sure that things are running smoothly and if nothing else that the student teacher hasn't screwed up something that they may have to fix later on you know so that's a part of it as well i was thinking about uh, i was laughing when you said um the parent teacher conference because you know you might recall you were there for one of the worst ones i have ever had it was no, it was the worst one I have ever had in my 25 years. Do you recall what I'm talking about? Um, I just recall the the noise of this woman standing up while we were seated and she was pounding on the table. Screaming. Um, yeah, with 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 emphasis and and <laughs> she didn't um seem to appreciate the the moment, you know, that she was yeah. surrounded by us and I think our our principal. Yeah. Right. And uh, a principal was a bit shocked, I think, by how that turned fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's nothing like the clarifying moment of being screamed at for like 10, 15 minutes. And then the screaming ends with the statement, answer me. And (laughs) I started (laughs) I started to laugh. And that's probably not a good strategy to use when you're confronted with an irate parent. But I I didn't know what else to do. I didn't. No, I, I didn't, under, I didn't, for one, I didn't hear a question. And second, I just, I, I, how do you, what could you say to, 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 to step that parent off the ledge? I'm not quite sure it's possible. And as it turned out, it was not possible with her, but what yeah. are you going to do? Well, we, we were kind of intrigued by how far it would go, but I, I think you know, both of us <laughs> in retrospect could have ended it much quicker and spared the principal that, uh, or spared the teacher, by the way. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> but yes, I think we were curious about how how long her rant would last. Um, she could that, have her own talk show, you know. And we should we should have her as a guest. We could do that. <laughs> um, but that's something that uh you know that you don't experience it you know in student teaching and, and right. what you do you're you're never ready for it. Um, and and 
I, I guess in my own student teaching, the, the teacher did go to another room. It was a split level class, third and fourth year German. So I was with the third year, you know, so I had my own class for, for really the whole semester. So that was kind of unique. Right. Um, but dealing with, you know, disruptive student behavior in your class and I mean, in the halls, I mean, how many student teachers break up a fight, you know, um, it, it, it's something that will get your attention because, you know, that's part of the job and you're, you're in the hallway and you're dealing with students who aren't yours and you have to have confrontations, you know, quite often. Right. Um, but that's not in the manual, right. As they're, as mm. they're preparing to be a teacher. So what do we do then as advice? How do we frame advice for the young teacher who admittedly is coming into the classroom with not as much real world experience as they perhaps should have. We talked about the the difference there in Germany, where in Germany there is an extensive uh, practicum period before they have their own classroom. So um, what kind of things would you bring up? Well, I think I said at the beginning that they should just not do it. You know, don't go into the profession. Well, that's a ridiculous piece of advice. Well, I thought it let's was assume pretty... let's assume that people listening want to be teachers. Well, I'm trying to talk them out of it to spare them all the, <laughs> the sorrow later. Um, but you know, it, it sounds a little pithy. You know, we we've said before, don't go to the faculty faculty room because oh, yes. they'll yes. turn you against the profession. Um, but. I, I think the biggest worry is isolation. You know, you're in a, a room with, with with students of whatever age, you know, most of the day. Um, so having, you know, being able to talk to other teachers is really important, but to be honest, because, you know, if you talk to a school administrator, I mean, they're supposed to be your, your coach, right. On, you know, like managing student behavior, right. but, but they're also evaluating you. And so there, mm. there's, there's that, you, know, you need a safe space to, to vent, uh, to, you know, get upset, but also to get some real answers. And, you know, I think that's, that's the most important. Um, a lot of little things of just having a job and being professional come in, you know, a lot of new teachers don't really know how much work it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, w- I would expect during the first uh, year that you're getting to school early and staying late. It's just, the, mm-hmm. it's just the way it is. And, and eventually you find your way, but having that uh, mentor, um, would be helpful. I think you had a mentor at uh, various times, didn't you? I did. Um, now, when I first started, though, I was very reticent to speak because, I'm, unfortunately, like other professions, uh, there is a political sphere to the relationships within a school. And there are people that you can talk to and there are people that perhaps you should not talk to. And not even the question about administrators where you're talking to potentially uh, a um, uh, someone who's going to be uh, evaluating you, but just to be cautious about who you speak with regarding whatever issues you're dealing with. But I think once you find that person, you know you've got to you've got to lean on that individual, and that individual understands because that individual's been there themselves, you know. But to be able to find that individual to be able to talk with, and to be able to vent is key. Well, there are uh, individual students, you know, that are difficult to deal with, mm. you know, and so sometimes your your day can be made or not made by is that student even in attendance, and you, and you know the feeling, you know, mm. oh, oh good that student's not here now I can teach it's relaxed, right? But the right. whole thing can shift um, mm. because of that, and so a, a new teacher needs to find a way to you know to 
get through to that that student and you know it can be a confrontation it can be a private conversation but but there are some hurdles and, and individual students can be hurdles um, but a, an experienced teacher can get past that so um, you're not just sending them to the office or writing referrals because that's not sustainable and it's really not a solution um, it, it, it works against teachers for the most part, you know, and, and at least from the administrative perspective, they want you to be able to, to solve that problem without using them. Right. I think the other thing, I think a, a, an additional thing would be for teachers to read, you know, in the schools of education, they will have a litany of books that you are required to read. And most of them, I, from my personal experience and from what I know talking to new teachers, a lot of the books are by, are, are recently published by uh, the more modern day picadillos of the profession. I've used that word picadillo in, in like 20 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something to the idea of going back. You know, we, you know, when you look at the, um, we look at the opening salvo, the opening writing that you uh, so so cleverly wrote uh, regarding our podcast. You know, you you uh, evoked the words of Neil Postman, and I think you know that someone like him or someone similar to him is not a bad idea to read, because I think when you look at the books of uh, that are being recommended in education schools, I think a lot of it represents current and ultimately very transient ideas. And what you need is something a little bit more grounding as a new teacher. And so I think it's, I think it's imperative to read uh, what those who came before you have said on the matter. And I'm not talking about just going back to Neil Postman in the mid sixties. I'm talking about going back to what did, what did education mean during the enlightenment? What did education mean uh, during the classical period? Uh, because you can't tell me there's not an application there. Uh, but if you think that all that is to be known and all that is to be learned is being written over the course of the last couple of years, well, that's just idiotic. And you have to have a broader sense of your profession and reading what others have written on the subject, I think would be paramount. Well, and, and at the very beginning of our conversation, we talked about the why, you know, why are you teaching to begin with? And it's, it has to be more than a paycheck because the paycheck just isn't that great. Um, but there is a, a rhythm to the year. And, and I guess this is my counsel to a, a new teacher uh, is that there are, it's a, it's a kind of a long, you know, it's a marathon that, that year and there are highs and lows and you, you tend to, have some elation early on in the year. And then, and then you, after a couple of months, things kind of bog down a little bit, and then you're waiting and waiting for that vacation that you get through it. Um, and then the, the spring starts and you're into testing, but there are about three or four lows and a, and a lot of highs in between there. And eventually, I mean, right now you're in the midst of it this time of the, the, the school year, but there's going to come that time where the school year gets kind of silly because it's over. You know, right. and it always surprises us every year. Right? <laughs> oh yeah, wait a minute. You know, I've done this twenty-five times. Yes, and and by by May it's done. And and yeah. so they, they, I guess the new teachers need to know that that it does have kind of this denouement, right? Yes. Uh, and it's at the end of the end of the school year, and then the summer they rejuvenate and they come back and repeat it. Uh, but they're eventually, 
that schedule and the regularity of all those uh, emotions and the calendar is really comforting. You know, you have the, the, the weekly calendar, you have the vacations and the summer, and it becomes part of your life. Now, they often, if I may evoke baseball. Um, no. No, yeah, well, I, I, that, this, there's a there's a connection here. I stick with that was me a for question, a second. like a request. No, no, no. no, no. I, I was more. It's more of a statement actually than a request. But you know, they often talk about baseball during June and July and August as the dog days of summer, uh, because it, that is the grinding period of the baseball season, and a school year uh, has its own dog days, um, and you know the joy and the energy of August, the capriciousness and just ridiculousness of May uh, is uh, sandwiches a period of time that, as you say, has those highs and lows. And, and to be able to uh, navigate those lows, I think are essential, is essential for any new teacher to be able to, you know, as you say, to find the comfort in it um, is essential to a new teacher. Right. And, and as a, a student teacher, you mentioned that the university schedule doesn't necessarily allow a full semester, usually, right. I mean, not in real life. Um, and a lot of times the student teachers on the sidelines kind of taking things in and eventually they, they get their, their time, but they really don't get to appreciate that, you know, the, the change is the seasonal aspect of, of teaching. And mm. um, I think also early on, I don't know how many teachers leave during the first semester, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to read some statistics, but um, it is exhausting, and you build up uh, endurance. And and for one thing, speaking out loud using your indoor voice, but a pretty full indoor voice, um, you know, takes some endurance, and your your voice wears out, and and just it takes a toll on you. But then eventually, you get your sea legs, and and you you can do it, and you start to look forward to I guess that that challenge. Well, you're talking about the physical demands. That's something that I had a bit of a head start on because my father um, uh, was a minister. You know, once we converted from Judaism to Christianity, my father got into the ministry and he suffered from throat cancer after about five, six years of uh, preaching. And so and when I started my career, it was something that he always uh, counseled me on was the idea of how you take care of your voice. Because as you say, that, that, that end of August, you're getting sore throats, you know, just because you're projecting your voice in a way that you've not done in say two and a half months. And so uh, the demands of being on your feet, the demands of being up and down, working with students, you know, if you're an elementary teacher, good gracious, can you imagine the physical demands of an elementary school teacher uh, in, in contrast to a high school teacher? But yes, I, I think physically you have to be aware that there are going to be demands on your body that you've not uh, experienced yet. You know, the idea of going down to something as, as, as a pedestrian as good shoes. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that a teacher has to think about from a physical point of view at the start of the year. Well, and the teacher does control the, the schedule within that classroom of activities. Mm -hmm. And if, if it's an activity where you're leading class, actively speaking, and you, I mean, this happened to me quite often. Oh, oh my goodness, I spoke all day today, you know, nonstop. And I, I think the, the better approach is to, to do that, you know, occasionally, but mix in other activities. And so it's right. something that you can get through without wearing yourself out, because I think that's the most exhausting. Um, but the truth is, whenever you're, and I'm talking about high school now, when you're in a room with high school students, 
it's exhausting by nature. You know, right. you know, they they could be talking or reading or doing worksheets, whatever it is, they're taking energy from you um, and, and kind of sucking it away, uh, gone forever. But that, that's that's the nature of it as well. So you, you don't really get away unscathed no matter what you do in that room. And if you're like me, I mean, I've, I've, I, I think by nature, I'm an introvert. And I have become, as a product of this job, kind of what I refer to as a situational extrovert, you know, where, you know, I, I have to kind of uh, build myself up a bit to, you know, to be in front of the classroom vocally, energetically. I'm just not that bombastic as I might be, say, in front of a class. Um, and so I think having an understanding of what you're like uh, naturally and the degree to which you can translate that in the classroom, I think is essential. Um, yeah. So, well, that can be really joyful, you know, because I think you're right. I mean, we're both introverts, um, deeply introverted in some ways. Um, but there's something about, you know, you know, when the lights come on and you're, you're not on the stage, but kind of like that in a, in a classroom, um, it does work and it clicked yeah. for me as well. And, and, I don't know what it is, but you're around kids for one, you know, so you, you have, there's a different dynamic than if you were around a group of parents talking to them, you know, mm -hmm. usually that's not fun for anybody, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, I guess uh, we could call those words of wisdom for a, a new teacher. Who's a little bit uh, afraid of getting in, stepping in, you know, you, you'll know it when you hit that moment and, 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 and start to enjoy it and look forward to it. All right. And that persona that you carry with you into the classroom, you have to have that with students. You have to have that with the aforementioned parents. You have to have that with administrators, you know, but uh, uh, there's that. Um, now, I imagine that our podcast will, over the course of time, uh, include various bits of advice for not just young teachers, but teachers in general. I want to leave you, though, with a idea that's more specific to my discipline. And that is the idea of the teaching of critical thinking. And Christopher Hitchens, a uh, famed atheist and intellectual, once said that, uh, that, the, that critical thinking is not a product of what you think, it's how you think. Now, from a historical point of view, there are plenty of people willing to take the bully pulpit and pontificate. And I am not here to disparage those who do that, Although I will say that there, there is a potential problem there. When you talk about your own political viewpoints or you talk about your own viewpoints on anything, really, um, uh, that, that the part of the purpose of a, a, particularly a social studies teacher is to allow the kids to develop their own ideas. And they cannot do it if they're trying to mimic yours. Um, they've got plenty of people to tell them what they should think. The key is how do you teach a kid to think on their own and it's not an easy task and it is a frustrating task for them as a teacher it doesn't matter what you think uh, i think part of your role is to be the devil's advocate whatever they spit out from whatever segment of the spectrum they happen to be on you have to be able to combat that idea you know it's one thing to have an opinion for god's sakes be able to talk about it and defend it you know don't be just another person mimicking what someone else said and, and confuse that with intellectualism uh, or, or deep thought. It's, it's actually the opposite. And so I think from, uh, from a kind of a beginning standpoint for a history teacher, I think that's key. 
you know, that uh, you always hear stories about history teachers that are that are quite willing to use their classroom to advocate one questionable idea after another. Uh, and I think that any any history teacher who thinks that's part of their job, I think you have a gross misunderstanding of the job. You know, and so for especially new history teachers, and I guess this goes for any teacher because God knows there's plenty of people willing to spout off about what they think as we're doing on this podcast. But, you know, in front of a classroom, you have a much more, uh, you, have, you have a much more impressionable audience. And to that end, you have to be careful about what you say. But also being open to that conversation, which exactly. can, can get quite messy. Mm. You know, the, the, the danger of, of teaching is, is that you, you worry so much about what the perception of a controlled classroom. So if an administrator walks in that everybody's doing what they should be doing, the objectives are on the board and uh, it's kind of this linear process. But what you just described is, is really messy. I mean, critical thinking is just that critical. Um, and, and so if you have a, a, a classroom where, where students can uh, you know, hypothesize can can say um, silly things, maybe, but just they're testing it out, testing the waters, and and you're a safe place. Um, but also, you provide some guidance when they get a little off track. But that's messy, you know. And so, uh, I I would say that the uh, you know the the better teachers are are not afraid of that. You know, they they don't want that to permeate every minute of class, but they they kind of enjoy that messiness of, of the interaction with with the students. And, you know, unfortunately, the current atmosphere does not really allow for a teacher to easily weigh into those waters. Um, and um, that's, that's, that makes it all the more important to do so. You know, the, you know, the idea of, um, you know, for example, we'll end here with a kind of a, uh, uh, an example of my first year at a particular school. Uh, so I, well, I used to teach AP government. And so one of the things I would do is I would assign students Supreme Court cases that frequently made its appearance on the AP exam. And so uh, what they would do is they'd have to sit there and, uh, and they would have to uh, study the case. Uh, what was the constitutional question behind the case? Uh, how did the court rule? Why did the court rule that way? Consequences of the case, yada, yada, yada. Okay. And so one of the cases that I had, again, I was a first, I was first year teacher at this school. Uh, one of the first cases I had was um, a sodomy case that was uh, Lawrence versus Texas. And, and so I, I, I had a kid and I said, do you mind if I assign you this case? Are you okay? Are you comfortable with this? And the kid said, fine. Yes, no problem. It's okay. Very good. So you do this case, you know, because that's a case that's shown up on the test and that, you know, you can, you're smirking because you see where this is going. Um, and, and I'm trying and, to hold, hold back my, my laughter. <laughs> but um, but the thing is, is that the mother found out what the kid was researching. Now, that wasn't the mother who pounded on the. On no, the no, table. no. That's that's a different okay. pounding on the table. But um, she she found out what uh, her son was researching. She called the principal and she called the vice principal. She called everybody, strangely enough, but me uh, to try to get put a stop to this. And so I remember being called into the office and then one of the vice principals said that we you know we've had a complaint uh, from a teacher that you're teaching sodomy. 
<laughs> I said, I said, can we assume, I said, can we assume as a basis of this discussion that I wasn't teaching sodomy? Can we go ahead and work under that assumption? And we can go ahead and set that aside and then go ahead and deal with the rest of this ridiculous conversation, you know? And so, um, I, it was so comical. It's, it was, well, it would have been comical if I were not in a room with a couple of vice principals answering the charge and I'm teaching sodomy. So, you know, the idea that this is, that this is, this is some of the things that you run into when you endeavor to give your students a chance to think things through that perhaps maybe they ordinarily would not have thought through, you know, and the idea that, you know, Texas versus Johnson versus Texas is an instrumental case as far as, um, as far as gay rights in this country. And as far as uh, the kind of laws that are allowed at the state level, it's an important case. And if I can't sit there and talk to seniors about something of this importance without some Yahoo saying I'm teaching sodomy, I mean, I can see why teachers are reticent to enter into those into that fray. But I think it makes it all the more important that you're willing to do it. And um, and I didn't apologize. I didn't apologize to the lady. I said, I, you know, and there was a demand for an apology. I said, well. I said, as in addition to assuming that I wasn't teaching sodomy, we can go ahead and assume I'm not going to apologize because this is part of my job, for God's sakes, you know. So it it, do, it does have its risk, but given that it seems like most people talking about politics aren't really thinking at all, and they're certainly not, you know, because no no thinking human being is dogmatic. Okay. So everybody who who talks in dogmatic terms, and I guess I am now, I guess, but I, I was <laughs> going to suggest that but I, I was enjoying the irony. Of this. But I think anybody who speaks about political or social issues in dogmatic terms, it's almost it's almost guaranteed they're not thinking through things. And this goes to how you teach students how to think. Well, we might have a complete show on controversial issues that come up in teaching. Uh, sure. and, I, and I know that, you know, over the years, I mean, the things that we could get into 20 years ago, you know, we would be walking on eggshells now, you know, bringing it up. Um, and it's probably safer often not to, but I, I enjoyed the story. And I, so, but the listener, or uh, I'd like to know what, how it resolved. Did the student have to recite the case, the case, uh, the facts of the case? I believe the student was transferred. Transferred out of the school? Um, it's been some time now since it happened, but I believe it was transferred out. Yes. And it was not the student's decision because the student came up to me later and said, Mr. Miller, you need to know that wasn't me. And I said, Hey, whatever, you know, I'm not going to badmouth his parents, you know, in front of him. Um, even though I had plenty to say about their parents, but I think the kid was transferred out of the class. So, um, directly related to a, an assignment that you gave and that conversation, the student left, left right. school and I, you know, not left the school, but left my class. And oh, here, that kind of, well, you said transfer. I thought they, they, no, they no. left the state or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with Texas. They're teaching sodomy for God's sakes. <laughs> I should have never moved here. <laughs> I thought the Mexican food would keep me here, but no, I'm not standing for this. Um. But you know, the other, you know, the other, the other thing was, is that principal said, because I told him, I said, listen, I was teaching a, um, I was teaching a, a, a AP class and, and I was also teaching on level classes and, and the vice principal actually said, you know, there's certain things you, you do in AP classes, but you shouldn't do in regular classes. I said, well, that's a whole other discussion right there. I, and, and certainly it can be another discussion here. I hope that, 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 that vice principal has become, um, um, 
uh, aware of the fallacy of that argument. But but yes, I think he was actually transferred to another class. And, oh, okay. I was thinking that the vice principal was transferred uh, as well. Well, they probably should have been as well. That was a pretty dumb comment, uh, as wow. well as opening the meeting with, we're told you're teaching sodomy. And that was a first for me. And I, and it was so, it was so asinine. I didn't, I didn't know how to react at first, but. Uh, I don't know if you've ever told me that story before. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was a good one. Um, well, uh, I think, I think we're wrapping things up and, or, or things will deteriorate at this point. It can only go downhill from here. So yeah, uh, I'm still hoping that the Germans are listening to more than 2.5% of the podcast. I'm, I'm hoping for 3% next week. Just a little bit. Just a yeah, little those, bit more. Those statistics are, are troubling. Um, <laughs> but we're going to carry on. Yeah. We are going to carry on. So, well, I, I think we, we close with, with your story. and, and um, But, but we, we want new teachers um, to have a little bit of hope. You yes. know, I, I tended to... Uh, pick apart a lot of the, I mean, just deconstruct that that first year. Uh, a little bit of a pessimistic attitude on my part, and I would like to apologize for that. Um, but I, I do get in those moods. Um, but but overall, wouldn't you say that the the rewards of teaching you can't really quantify? Indeed, and you know, nothing worth doing is not without its uh, travails. You know. Um, and so I, I, I certainly would not be afraid of the travails that are associated with teaching uh, simply because, as you say, the, the benefits and the rewards are not only numerous, uh, but uh, difficult to measure. So, Well, very good. And I hope talking to us or hearing from us is not like going into a faculty room. Uh, <laughs> that, that would be terrible. Indeed. Well, sir, right. uh, let, let's call it a, a wrap. Let's wrap this or whatever the technical term is for that. Okay. Well, so long, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. And so long, Herr Miller. <laughs> <laughs>